You're listening to Four at the Back with Joe, Mazza, Neil and Pete. This week we're looking back at another one of our favourite football sides from the last 30 years. So pick up your Lucas Aid, lace up those Predators and go with Four at the Back. along to season two of four at the back now we've all been enjoying pre-season some of us a little bit too much uh maz has failed his fitness test so we've left him at home tonight uh, so tonight we're going with three at the back so good evening pete and neil Hello. Uh, so all four of us support premier league sides but there's only one that we didn't cover in, in the last season so we're going straight to villa park tonight to talk about aston villa side from the first year of the premier league in 1992 of course, 92 was a seminal year in English football. It marked the beginning of the Premier League, uh, which was the beginning of the evolution of the sport into the multi-billion pound industry we know today. The other big change from that summer was the revision of the back pass rule. Before the new all came into play, goalkeepers could pick the ball up from a direct pass from a teammate, leading to clubs like Liverpool, Arsenal and Leeds choking other sides once they were leading by time-wasting. The change in the rule gradually paved the way for more technically proficient goalkeepers and defenders in terms of having possession of the ball. But the transition period caught a number of keepers and defenders out. Amidst that backdrop, big Ron Atkinson was charged with the delivering success at Villa Park. As our resident Villa fan, Pete, why don't you give us the lay of the land at Villa in the summer of 92? So Villa had been through the ringer quite a lot in the preceding years because throughout the late 80s and early 90s it'd been a real roller coaster uh every time it looked like you were moving forwards and doing something you either did achieve something like they did in the uh the european cup in 1982 but it was followed by uh a, a, always followed by this kind of downturn so it within a couple of years of winning the european cup they'd been relegated they spent uh, a year or so uh, out of the top flight then they came back Following that weird spell in the, the mid-1980s when no one really remembers any of our players, they came back strong with a side that people do seem to remember a lot more fondly, uh, managed by Graham Taylor and featuring people, most notably probably uh, David Platt, Alan McAnally, the people whose names are still sung at Villa Park today. And they came second in the league. They lost out to that great Liverpool side who who were good at, as you say, choking sides once they got ahead. And they they didn't actually come all that close to, to Liverpool in 1990. But as I say, whenever we got some progress and something moving, it was always followed by this downturn as we passed over the top of the hill. And the year after, um, Graham Taylor went off to, to manage England. He replaced Bobby Robson. And we got in Dr. Josef Wenglos, the first <laughs> uh, the first foreign manager, I think, uh, possibly ever. Um, certainly in the, uh, the first division at the time, he was the only one. Uh, nowadays, people tend to, to acknowledge that Wenglos was actually ahead of his time. And a lot of the things that if we'd embraced them at Villa, we might have been Arsenal years before there was Arsenal. Like, he came and he was really stunned by English football culture coming from a very professional culture in, in central europe um but we were not that team we were not ready for that and villa went from finishing second 
to finish in about 19th. I would have to double check exactly where we came that season, but we were definitely not a great side. So when Ron Atkinson comes in the year before the one we're about to talk about, he's picking a side up that needs a lot of reinvention. And he does quite a good job of it, to be honest, even in that first season, as you might gather by the fact that we're talking about them in the second year. It was a, it was a good project that was developing. Uh, just taking a look at, at the team, there was only a handful of players that had been there for very long at this point. Nigel Spink in goal was present throughout the 1980s. Uh, Tony Daly had been a trainee since the mid 80s and had come through and was a real star. Noted mainly for his his pace and the occasional wonder goal. And we'd brought in Paul McGrath, who was probably the best player, despite some very well-publicized now alcoholism uh, issues. And Dwight York was really the only other player that we had, even though he was really still very much, much a trainee. Other than that, the side gets this complete reinvention in 1991 when Big Ron takes the job. Uh, he's just moved across the park, uh, across from Sheffield Wednesday at the time. And he buys all sorts of players. He picks up Steve Staunton uh, from Liverpool uh, in, a, in a, a real bargain that real perplexed a lot of Liverpool fans. Sean Teal replaces some much more famous centre-halves like Kent Nielsen and Kevin Gage. But he brings in Sean Teal from Bournemouth and he becomes a real unheralded star. And a good counterfoil for Paul McGrath playing a kind of classy defender with a no-nonsense old-fashioned centre-half in, you know, in inverted commas. Gary Parker joins from Nottingham Forest in 1991. Cyril Regis gets another couple of years out of his career, even at his age, joining on a free transfer from Coventry City. Um, Perhaps most eye-catching of all, we get Kevin Richardson and Dalian Atkinson within a span of a couple of months from uh, Real Sociedad in Spain. And Richardson becomes a club captain and Atkinson becomes probably the most talented player in the side. And when he's fit, the attacking focal point. So they power us back on up the league, this this new look Villa side, playing a lot more attacking football, uh, quite quite progressive. And I think we finished something like seventh in the end. I'd have to double check exactly what, but it's it's a big improvement on the 19th or 20th that we came the year before. So we're going into 92-93 with this real sense of, of, of optimism that we've moved a long way from being the side that had gone down, a long way even just from the Vengloss year. Uh, we're adding yet more players to the mix. Ray Houghton comes in from Liverpool, which is another curious decision on the part of Graham Souness, who's in charge there by this point. We pick up Earl Barrett, who'd really impressed playing for for Oldham. So he fits in at right back. Uh, He was an England international. And then at the start of the season, the, the kind of final piece of the jigsaw puzzle that really livens things up and kicks us into challenging for the title this year was getting uh, another coup signing Dean Saunders from Liverpool. So that's really how the side comes together. And it just shows just how much reinvention and and kind of transformation had gone on just in really in the space of a couple of years. I think the interesting thing about it is a lot of good teams come together in this sort of almost like action movie, you know, like those ensemble cast action movies. And, you know, what you just described there with the way this Villa side came together is a little bit like that, because, you know, Staunton, um, Saunders and uh, Houghton are all surplus to requirements for Graham Souness. And if you look at what happened to Souness at Liverpool, those three were not the problem. 
you know, um, <laughs> he had a lot of problems with the people that he ends up keeping, ironically enough. Um, and they were, you know, Staunton was still very young when he left Liverpool. I mean, he'd been a, a teenage superstar for them. You know, they picked him up for absolutely nothing from the, from Ireland. And, you know, he, he burst through the ranks of Liverpool, was a really classy player. And it's a real coup for Villa to get him. And then you look at Paul McGrath, like Fergie did a well-publicised purge of this sort of drinking club at Old Trafford when he took over. And, you know, and McGrath was a, a genuine alcoholic at uh you know at that point in his career and you know he gets sort of not only that but he has extremely bad knees and so it looked like you know real kind of career overtime but he goes to Villa and you know arguably is up there with people like Beresi as the you know among the best centre-halves on the continent for those couple of years um wins the PFA player of the year is absolutely brilliant um and then you sort of you're looking at sort of some solid pros like El Barra and and you know some uh, you know and some um, players that sort of you know go a bit unheralded uh, these days, but are actually um, are actually really really good. I mean, we we sort of uh, talked about or we're going to talk about. I can't remember whether Raymond did this. Neil Cox, um, you know, talking about the Borough Galacticos, and he's kind of playing a bit more of a. Um, you know, a bit more of a kind of uh, a different role for Villa that season, isn't he? Than he plays for Middlesbrough, but he was a good young player coming through. So it's just the way that Atkinson blends them together. Um, and really, he was a manager, I think, that um, really valued that sort of, you know, gung-ho football, progressive, attacking. You know, he was a Hollywood manager, you know, the the dress sense, the you know, the coats, the sunglasses, the suntan, the comb over, the whole thing. You know, he, he looked like, um, you know, a, a rich car salesman that holidayed in the Costa del Sol <laughs> for six months a year. And at the time, that was about as glamorous as English football tended to get. And he has been at United and, you know, he'd won cups at United. He'd, he'd, he'd had success, but he missed out on the holy grail of the league. And of course, they had this you know, monkey on their backs, United, of not having won the league in 25 years. And Ferguson was under pressure for the same reason that same year. And you get this great narrative of Atkinson reinventing himself at Villa with this fresh side, while Ferguson has put together the best side he's had since he's been there. And they're going for their first title in 25 years. And I think people sometimes forget how big a club Villa is. You know, perhaps because in the past decade, they've they've not had, you know, very much success. But but, you know, they are part of the founding mafia of the league. And and the, to me, the Premier League never looks right when Villa aren't in it. Like, they're one of those teams that should always be in the top division. Um, and, you know, it seems pretty fitting to me that first year of the Premier League that um, they went toe-to-toe with United pretty much all the way to the end. Mm, yeah, it, it all falls apart in the last few games. I, I think a, a huge part of why Villa aren't seen that way outside of certain circles is that classic thing of football begins in 1992. Um, At the time that this is going on, the gulf between Villa and Man United is a lot smaller than many young 
listeners, if they're coming across this, might actually believe. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and tell them that Villa were still as big a club as Man United. But if you look at who'd won the league more recently, it was Villa. If you look at who'd won the European Cup more recently, it was Villa. You look at the size of the fan bases. United was bigger, but it hadn't had this global explosion that we've seen in the Premier League era. It's all of these, the teams that have got bigger in the last 20 or 30 years have exploded exponentially. But because of that thing that we forget what happened before 1992 and I think it's only the fact that you know Liverpool kept on winning cups well into the into the 1990s Man United went away and and won all those uh what was it five of the first six uh Premier Leagues or whatever it happened to be Arsenal um came back really strong in that first decade of the Premier League it's only that that really set them all above all those classic big clubs of the the older generation to quite the degree that we now know. Uh, but you're spot on about Big Ron. I mean, he was the biggest character in English football at the time. Um, certainly before Cantona really becomes the the Eric that we know subsequently. And it just made for a, a really glamorous uh, t- title race in a sense. Because Man United, I mean, even without the titles behind them, meant glamour. And then you put this, a Villa side playing football that compared to them with this big, brash, colourful character in the hot seat. It really did make the the perfect story for people that wanted to kick off this league with a bang. We're, talk, I mean, we're talking about uh, Ron Atkinson being sort of the figurehead of, of Villa. I suppose there's, there's two figureheads to Villa at this time. What sort of team were they? I mean, we, we've talked a little bit about Manchester United right at the start of season one. Um, although we talked about the season after. And the impression that I get is they were sort of pioneers of a, of a new a, a newer type, a newer style of football. Um, Villa, no, no, nothing we've talked about suggests that they, would, they were doing anything particularly revolutionary um, at the time. So what sort of style of football were, were they playing at the time? It was more passing oriented than what United were playing. United were always throughout Ferguson's reign very, very good at counter-attack football. And that's why the pace of players like Konchelskis and, and Lee Sharp and, and several others, I'm sure we can name, go on to be really devastating for Man United. If you go and watch some of these Villa um, games back, you can see there's it's almost more modern in some senses uh, than what United were doing. Uh, there tends to be much more of an effort to get the ball down and play it and entertaining football in that very cliched way. Seems to, it seems to be the way forward. They, they don't mind knocking the ball up early, from usually from the, the fullback positions. Um, but they were not as tactically rigid as United who tended to play a 4-4-2 pretty much consistently. So they were passing the ball. There was some mixtures of formations. They spent a lot of time playing a 4-3-3 um, and mixing that in with 3-5-2s and, and 4-4-2s. So they were they were fluid. And maybe, I'm, maybe that at some level backfired uh, when you think that they didn't actually take advantage of being at, at the the head of the league for so long they didn't get over the line maybe they were a little bit too uh too too inclined to to swap um it does 
when you, when you think about how settled United were and compared with us, it is funny to think that Man United fans used to call Alex Ferguson Tinkerbell. Um, but yeah, I think but they, United sort of tighten up, don't they, at the second, the back end of that season. You know, once they get Kansnar, um, you know, I think they they develop that sort of juggernaut way that they had of playing. Um, and I think, you know, that, that first half of the season where Villa were kind of, Villa and Norwich were kind of leading the pace um, and United hasn't quite found their formula and they pick up Kansnar in December and, you know, it kind of all comes together for them. And I think, you know, naturally Villa and Norwich being where they were um, and maybe not having all that much experience of being, of being up there, kind of gone a little bit of a nosebleed as United started to put the pressure on but you know that's not to take away from how good those two teams were I mean we'll probably look at this uh, we'll probably look at the Mike Walker Norwich side um at a later date but they were they were both you know terrific um footballing sides especially when you compare them to you know to a uh, Howard Wilkinson Leeds or a George Graham Arsenal um they were, you know, very, very progressive for the time. And it was a time when most teams in English football played 4-4-2 with, with, you know, very conventional wingers that crossed the ball and didn't particularly leave the touchline. Um, and, you know, I think you can probably credit United for creating um, wingers that were more, you know, goal contributors. Um, but certainly the kind of vogue for... Um, I guess what you might end up terming Wenger ball, you know, there's a little bit of that about Atkinson's Villa and Atkinson's Sheffield Wednesday, to be honest. Mm. Um, so, yeah, certainly. So, I mean, I, I think if you go back and watch those Premier League games that Villa and, and, and Norwich play in that first season of the league, I think people would be surprised by by how good the football is. Yeah, they're both brilliant passing sides and better than United at being passing sides, to be honest with you. Uh, Norwich, I mean, might actually be the real superstars considering they did it on a fraction of the budget that Villa did. Obviously, they didn't come as close to winning the league as Villa did, where we were only a couple of games shy. But, um, yeah, I think United's winning the league, beating out the passing sides, keeping it um, with the 4-4-2, and 4-4-2 being so central to everything United did through that first decade of, of success. I think that's part of the reason why it takes so much of English football quite some time to to catch up because they look at the broad outline of what Ferguson was doing rather than the detail. So we're still playing 4-4-2 a lot later. And I think that's really why it, it's, it, it's the 2000s before the, the rest of the league starts to revolutionise and you get these odd managerial figures like I don't know who am I thinking I mean, of like someone but, like but Benitez is pretty much the guy you credit with the four two three one, isn't he? You know, like that Liverpool he he kind of brought that to Liverpool and then for a while everybody played four two three one. <laughs> you know. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I was just kind of thinking that you you end up still with like people managing with flat four four twos even into like two thousand four, two thousand five I mean, and they and they just guys is doing it now. <laughs> yeah, but I mean it's 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 like refined. Now as I'm thinking of the guys who got killed, like your Les Reeds and you you remember these guys they they come in and they're just tactically inept. Sammy Lee, was he doing the same sort of thing for a while there in about two thousand and eight? <laughs> yeah, it's it's an interesting one. I think four four two went out of vogue for a long time because yes it you know, against a four-three-three, it leaves you very open, um, and a lot of teams switch to sort of four-three-three, and then you just got outnumbered in midfield. And I think Ferguson worked that out because I think we talked about this. We did the United's episode 
they went into Europe and teams like Barcelona just passed them out, passed them off the park um, because they didn't have the numbers in midfield. And that's when Ferguson started adapting for European games and, you know, playing Ryan Giggs up front <laughs> in Champions League quarterfinals and things like that. Um, but, it was the uh, thing that allowed Mourinho to, uh, to sort of take hold of the Premier League. But most When he turned up in 2004, most teams were still playing 4-4-2. And I suppose it helps when you've got Claude Makélélé to, to do the, the work of two men. But uh, Absolutely. Uh, but... That base that caught that forced a lot of teams to adapt as well. I think I think the, to bring it back to Atkinson, the interesting thing is is that he is interviewed. I th- I think it's it's sort of like the weekends before you know if Villa lose again, that's kind of you know mathematically they can't win the title. Um, and you know he basically says we play the way we play. Um, you know we've had a lot of success playing the way we play, and I'm not going to change that. Now we're three games out from the end of the season you know whatever happens will happen and and that is really you know that really sums up what his philosophy was and you can trace that back all the way through his career you know his West Brom side were great entertainers you know and and had you know you know those those kind of uh players like Brian Robson who'd go on to be you know world superstars um you know, Cyril Regis played from at West Brom, you know, Laurie Cunningham. You, you're talking about like some really, really talented footballers. Um, and he he took that to United. His United sides were, you know, really, really attacking. I mean, player, bringing through players like Norman Whiteside, who was an absolutely brilliant footballer. Um, so, you know, he kind of had his way of, of going about things and, and he wasn't, going to change it and although he was tactically fluid it was always tactically fluid in, a, in an attacking sense really wasn't it I mean correct me if yeah. I'm wrong Pete on that one no no so absolutely it, right so he, he wasn't right. one for wasn't one for being pragmatic and um you know and, and sort of sticking it up the jumper so to speak no it's football's an entertainment business to, to big Ron I think uh, you can tell everything about the way he carries himself reflects that you know uh, right down to telling jokes at press conferences and singing my way on the on the end of season videos and things so i mean he's he's just that kind of kind of figure um i mentioned about the tactical fluidity and like we already had dwight york there i think people forget that at this point in time and all through big ron's reign um dwight york was a winger winger. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah so so that's part of playing 4-3-3 in in the year before when we finished seventh cyril regis is the is usually the, the kind of man up, up front in the centre-forward role. And then Daly and Atkinson might be playing there, but more often than not, Atkinson and York would kind of fit in or, or on either flank. And that means that Dwight York, even as a teenager or 20 years old or whatever he happens to be, ends up as the as the top scorer. But he doesn't get in to the side for much of this season, even despite just finishing as top scorer. And we, we have a, a run where we're experimenting with other forwards uh, we play 4-4-2 quite a lot with uh, Saunders and Atkinson up front but we also play 4-3-3s where it's Atkinson out on the usually the right wing and then some combination of York or Froggart did quite well Steve Froggart who was another Villa trainee and who kind of disappeared once um, once he left Villa and uh, the German Stefan Beinlich I think didn't really achieve much else after after it but there's this Although there's quite a settled side in some respects, there's this cast of characters that move in and out of the team, in and around. And it's usually in those wide positions. The two fullbacks 
as you say, Neil Cox played quite a lot. And then there's those wide positions either side of the forwards. And it wasn't guaranteed that it would be Dwight York. Uh, and it, it it's never guaranteed that York's going to be a regular player until Brian Little comes in a couple of years later. Yeah, it's interesting, actually, because you've got the players in the squad that would go on to be big players um, for Brian Little. So, you know, like uh, Bosnich is, is in the squad, York is in the squad, Ekiog is in the squad, but they kind of blossom with the next management, don't they? So it's almost like, because really Villa were, I mean, Villa were really up there for cons- really consistently right up until you know, 2006, 2008 as a team that were always there or thereabouts. Yeah, we we keep going all the way through really until the end of the, the John Gregory era. And then it's becoming clear that we can't compete with the the new money that's coming in. So we have a, a rough five years where we have one good season under David O'Leary and either side of that is not very good. And then we obviously the Randy Lerner money kicks in and we have five good years before all that turns to, to rubbish as well. Uh, Ekiog is bought for the future, really, but it's surprising how, how quick he does come in and, and take the, the shirt. He gets a chance the year after the one we're talking about. Um, I think McGrath gets gets injured. And yeah, Ekiog, despite being a kid, turns up and it's just brilliant from the start. Mm. And he's always he's like a seven out of 10 every week. Yeah, he's big, strong, no nonsense, uh, but also quite classy in a way that I think get, doesn't always get appreciated. Yeah, uh, so, wonderful so, player. And so Sean Teal's run with Villa ends up being three, four years. And then it's McGrath and Ekio going forward from there. And then once Brian Little gets his feet under the table a bit more, uh, we can add Gareth Southgate gate and go on. But yeah, it, he... he it's it's little then that builds on so much of the stuff that that Big Ron was doing. You know, Big uh, Big Ron was the one who bought in Ekio for forty thousand pounds from from West Brom. Um, he's the one that uh, bought in Mark Bosnich, and even before we we switch out, there's this thing where Bosnich is clearly being prepared to take the role over from Spink full time, who's who's been there forever at this point, and was super reliable, like a really good keeper. Mm. Yeah, he was more more dependable than Bosnich. He just didn't have the remarkable save in him that that mm. Bosnich had that that got a lot of the the highlights and was really, I think, why Bosnich ended up getting that move to Man United and had this reputation as the third best keeper in the Premier League uh, after at the end of his Villa run, which I think subsequently was proven to be you know, slightly flattering to him. Um, but, but great Spink shots, was great, great shot stuff for Bosnich, wasn't he? But yeah. you know, has a mistake in him as well. But he plays yeah. 17 league games, I see here. So you know, it's actually a pretty even split. Spink 25, Bosnich 17. Mm-hmm. Especially when you consider that uh, during this this run as well, we'd pick up Bosnich and Les Seeley at about the same time. And Seeley was not bought to be a backup. And it just kind of shook out that way because Spink was able to, to hold him off. I, I think the feeling is that you're developing Bosnich and 93-94 in particular is really where the, the two swap over for good. You know, 90, uh, from that point on, I think people start to think of, of Bosnich as the number one. Um, and it's it, But this year, it, it's probably still Spink just. I, just, know, I, just, I just looked at your uh, youth squad that year and it's interesting. You've got... Uh, Ricardo Skimmaker and Lee Hendry uh, in the youth team at the time, who'd obviously both go on to be players. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Skimmaker's a, a fairly useful squad player. And Lee Hendry um, 
well i mean unless you had ludicrous expectations for him he um, he, he went on to be brilliant i, mean, I think there are yeah. people who think he, he kind of underachieved somewhat but i look at what he did achieve and unless you were thinking he was going to be an england regular then uh, it's very hard to fault him yeah lovely player um but i, I think you know one of the, the theories about this 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 Villa team has, has always been that you know the injury to Atkinson um, in the middle of the season sort of really hurt uh, the title push. Like, how true would you say that was? Yeah, it's it's very true. Um, or at least that's that's what um, the, everybody involved seems to think because there's this wonderful correlation. It's it's between. Um, when we are going strong and when we're kind of putting the numbers up to to really get to the top of the league and how clear we are and the second half of the season uh, because we basically only have one firing striker for the for the second half because Atkinson's the star really in many ways Saunders is a wonderful box, uh, in the box striker and he can really score all different kinds of goals but Atkinson is the closest thing we have to an Eric Cantona in he's that mercurial um, mercurial striker who will do something out of nothing and surprise you. And I think it's November. He scores his last goal, doesn't score again for the entire second half of the season. And he's just got these recurring injuries where he, I think it's hamstring injuries that he mostly has. And we're kind of rushing him back in to try and, uh, you know, turn things, things around because we're obviously under pressure. So, so I think there's definitely some truth to it. And you look at the number of teams that we should have beat that we didn't, because that's really what, what did it for Villa this year is Man United were very good at beating the teams in the bottom five or six and Villa weren't, they were much better playing against the likes of Man United where we, we beat them and we drew with them and we beat the teams at the top and we didn't polish off the teams down the bottom. And you have to think that those games where the teams come to you and defend against you, defend deep, try and stop you getting in the man who can, unpick the defense by doing something unexpected or a bit spectacular that's who would really have, have changed the season so i think that's there's two two moments that really change it and they're not actually all that far apart chronologically one is daly and atkinson's injuries getting the better of him once again and man united signing eric Cantona because we lose our big mm. creative force at the same time that they add theirs yeah and and, and i think you know it's been well publicised how much of an influence Cantona had on that United title-winning season. Um, but yeah, I, I hadn't thought about that historical correlation before. That's certainly that's certainly a, a really interesting point. I mean, you say that you've only got one firing striker at any one point. I mean, Saunders is Saunders only scores two goals in the league after January, um, which again strikes me as an area where. It, it may have cost you. And and it might be that, you know, that Atkinson created a lot of the space that Saunders liked to work in. You Absolutely. know, because, you know, yeah. defenders were worried about Atkinson and Saunders would be darting in and around. And, and you know, um, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult to, it's difficult to kind of look back with this much um, distance and say definitively, but one of the things that United did under Ferguson from 92 onwards was as as their opponents started to kind of waver, they got stronger. And that was like an ongoing theme with like every United side all the way 
you know, all the way through till Wenger took over, really, at Arsenal. Yeah, I, the thing is with Saunders is he's the kind of striker that blew hot and cold as well. Um, when he was hot, he was unplayable. You just had that knack of finding the near post when you least wanted him to as a defender, and he could do it almost at will. But you saw, no matter where he was throughout his career, that when he was cold, he was he was frozen. You know, he, he there were times when he looked like he couldn't do anything. Um, the other thing United had that we didn't was goals from all over the pitch and we didn't have mm. the most we didn't have the most prolific midfield our our version of um of the goal scoring midfielder was Gary Parker who is now underappreciated in that role but he, he was underappreciated even by Big Ron I mean a year later he's kind of out of the side uh and he gets shifted shifted on to to Leicester prematurely I think by by Brian Little so but he's the one that that is mo- most likely to get you a goal from midfield. And when we beat Liverpool 4-2, I think he scores twice and one of them's a fantastic, uh, fantastic goal. Um, but there's not a lot else that you can really point to and say, this is where we're going to get a goal if it isn't the strikers. So, you know, defenders pop up with odd goals as much as midfielders do in that in our team and in some senses that's not a bad thing you know you think goals from all over the park but when they're coming in twos and threes rather than having someone who can like a Ryan Giggs consistently put up an eight or ten it's uh it puts a lot of pressure on on the strikers to to carry that goal scoring burden and that's again another thing that I think probably is the reason we run out of steam in those last few weeks kind of a shame that that maybe York's development wasn't you know a year or two accelerated because that would have made a hell of a difference I mean you wonder about I mean some of those players that came in I mean that team from sort of 95 96 I could probably reel off the top of my head now I'm I'm not a Villa fan Um, and you feel like some of those players in there would have would have made a huge difference but I suppose at this stage it's not so much of a squad game um and i guess united just don't, you know you pick up Cantona for 1.2 million that's that's the luck of the draw isn't it at that stage it's not it's not like united have gone out and dropped 80 million quid on on the world's best defender or anything like that they've just they've caught lightning in a bottle like you, it's not very often you you land a player like that for i mean you know 1.2 million in those days was still a, a fair chunk of money but United offered three million quid for David Hurst from Sheffield Wednesday, and got rejected. Mm. So it's mm. and you think that these these are the sort of the fine margins, aren't they, that that decide whether a team succeeds or fails. And you think of sort of sliding doors moments. And was this a, a season where should this have been the beginning of something, Pete? Because it, it feels that Villa have never been closer since, have they? No, it's it's really difficult to answer that because it depends on what happens next. Obviously, if we were to have won the league, I think it changes the entire Premier League because Man United haven't won it again. So yeah, I don't think you get that dominant United side through the 1990s. I, I wouldn't rule out Alex Ferguson, the manager he was, building a great side a couple of years later. But I don't think you get the dominance of one team the way that they ended up dominating the 90s if it doesn't happen in that first year in that way but at the same time i can't really say i think it would have been this villa team going on to title after title because one of the things 
that was the reason why whenever we reached a point and then dropped back off was we were always the team at the end of the life cycle and they were a team built mm. to win the league this year. You look at the number of players that were aging and were moved on to when we sold the players in this side, very few of them went on to, to bigger teams, you know, Dwight York obviously did, but much later, m- much, much later. Yeah. If you look at the team, the the change from this side to the Brian Little team, Gary Parker moves on to Leicester. Uh, Ray Houghton moves on to Crystal Palace. Paul McGrath moves on to Derby. Um, Kevin Richardson moves on to Coventry. And I, I put no disrespect to any of these teams, but they were not ever teams that were going to be challenging at the top of the Premier League at that point in time. So there were t- players that were the wrong side of 30 for the most part. And that meant that it was now or never and the rebuild was going to have to come regardless. Now, it would have been much better to have been rebuilding from a position of strength. That's the one thing that I can say that makes me think there was an opportunity missed. And I don't think we would have been on the verge of relegation two years later as we were had we won the league here. And when you factor in that Man United would have been a completely different side had they lost the league that year, they certainly would never have built up all that reserve of mental fortitude when things get tough and all that stuff. And I don't think they would have been as dominant in that 93, 94 side when they were just phenomenal and they could just blow everybody away. So when United are different and we don't, and we are rebuilding from a position of strength, I think those two facts alone would change the league beyond recognition. And I think it, the one thing you can maybe argue is that it really just kicks the door open for somebody like Blackburn to come through much stronger than they did, to be honest with you. Yeah. I think, I think United's, were under a lot of pressure that year and they when they made it over the line it was almost relief as much as anything else you know 25 years for that club without a title was was enormous and you know um I guess Villa it hasn't been as long as that when was Villa's title like 81 yeah 81 then the European Cup in 82 and then the Super Cup following on immediately from that so so yeah it has more success you know in a way than the United has had um I mean, you might have been relegated in the in the mid seventies. Um, well, know, so had so had Villa. We'd actually played each other in the second tier, which must have been right. a really a really weird looking league table in like nineteen seventy three. Seeing uh, Man United and Villa promoted from the second tier at the same time. Yeah, that that is a, a peculiar thought for sure. So so it, it's it's um it, it's a lot of pressure that they were under, uh, and um and and so I think Villa. Had they won that, yeah, I think definitely, you know, you'd almost argue that that Ferguson might not have survived that because, you know, he'd been there since 86 at that point um, Mm. and they still hadn't won a title. He went perilously close to sack before the famous Mark Robbins goal. Um, Yeah, would you you actually be looking at replacing Ferguson at that point? I mean, does Roy Keane join... Um, from Forest, or does he choose? Well, was, or does he choose Blackburn? I mean, mean, does does he go to Blackburn, or, or you know, if things are different, does he go to say a Norwich or Villa or, 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 or something or a Newcastle like that? Even, or you know? yeah, because Newcastle well, was starting with, about to about to come up, and we're spending a lot of money. Um, mm. But the other, so, yeah, I mean, Ferguson had he, he gets dealt some a lot of luck at this point, doesn't he? Cantona comes off and turns into one of the greatest players the Premier League has ever seen, um, having sort of bounced around Ligue 1 in France for 
a uh, few years, generally until he pisses someone off. Uh, his summer, his big summer signing after they win the league is Rory Keane, who again is a you know becomes one of the greatest players the Premier League has ever seen, and he's got the class of '92, just sort of ready to sort of pop up. And there's a lot, of, you know, they were influenced hugely by Cantona and particularly his work ethic. So you think if all these things don't fall into place, the the second half of the 90s looks very different. And, you know, everything that's come since looks very, very different. And, you know, Villa, I suppose, have been, um, I, sp- I suppose, Norwich equally a, a, a casualties of all of that. But, yeah, I mean, you imagine if, if that doesn't happen, Blackburn steamroll their way to, to the Premier League title the, next, the following year. And then God knows what's hap- what happens. Um the I mean, other would have been... that... Sorry, go on. No, I was just going to say, I mean, there's a lot of that stuff that is um, it is good fortune. None of it really compares to the good fortune of uh, the three minutes against Sheffield Wednesday turning into the seven or eight that it took Steve Bruce to score the second, which, <laughs> uh, which Ron Atkinson is still salty about to this day and will still tell you that um, he had it on. Because he obviously managed Sheffield Wednesday before uh, before moving to Villa, so he knew some of the players, and they'd told him that they'd asked the referee how long was left, and they were still playing several minutes after. So um, whether or not that's his ex-players like winding him up or not is uh, is, is food for thought. But um, it's it certainly was huge. something. That... I mean, that that moment where Ferguson runs on the pitch after the after the Bruce header, the mm-hmm. iconic Barry Davis commentary. It was a massive turning point in that season. It's one of those memorable moments in a football match I think I think I've ever seen um because they knew they knew how, how important that was you know and I mean I guess they'd get their karma wouldn't they because they'd have that game against West Ham when if they'd won they'd have pipped Blackburn to the title and then like you know um Andy Cole missed like six sitters or something so uh karma still, came to get them I in the end I still remember that it did I mean, see the, the momentum swing is is the one thing it's like the next week um having just seen them do that Villa go away and draw. And that's when United take the, the, the league by the scruff of the neck from that point on. Yeah. Um, the, the, the other thing that he says that he's convinced by is that had they only drawn that game, United would have been the ones to fold. And had it goes back to that question you said before, what if Ferguson hadn't done it? If United still had the reputation as bottlers rather than being the side that always got over the line. Because yeah. they were, yeah. that's the thing. You know, they really... They really, really were like for a for a long time because the season that Leeds win the league, you know, United are pretty close to them um, for a lot of the season. So yeah, I mean, and, and the, the the players they'd assembled, like they needed to win the league that season. And I guess the thing for Villa is, you know, once you know, once they kind of um, yeah, once they lose that game against Blackburn, and then they and then they basically lose the next two, and it's and it's gone, isn't it? Well, yeah, the last game's irrelevant because it's already over. I mean, by that yeah. point, it doesn't it doesn't matter if um if you lose to QPR once you've lost to Oldham. Um, the Oldham game is is a ludicrous one that's clearly just pressure, but there's no shame in losing to that that Blackburn team away. Um, it's clearly just like I said earlier on when you beat the top teams for the most part and you don't do the job against the bottom five or six. There's only so long you can go on like that mm. until you get caught. You know, lost eventually. Lost the Saints, yeah. lost the Coventry. Yeah. 
And that commentary um, game is one of the famous McGrath, who is our best player by far. So you don't want to get too, too, too uh, down on him. But that Coventry game, McGrath is um, having some alcohol-related issues on the field and kind of falling down. So there's a two-pronged, there's two sides to this Paul McGrath, and um, that's unfortunately one of those days when the other side came through. Uh, obviously, there's no reason that we that you can blame on him for the fact that we don't score. But yeah, the three nil may have something to do with Paul being off that day. We should talk about the... this. Sorry, I was going to say. Do you look at the start of the season and wonder what might have been? Because you, I mean, you don't win until the fifth game of the season. Um, we don't. There's a lot we don't really of, win until someone just comes in. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of drop points sort of early in the season as well, and so it, it, you know, you can. I suppose with the benefit of hindsight, you can look back at all these things and think, well. That's ultimately where where it went wrong. Um, it is hard to look quite that way because obviously we don't get the side completed until we add Saunders. Uh, yeah. So, but the other reason it's so hard is there's so much good football in that that first half. So you look towards the back end almost compulsively because I mean that win over Palace, that win over Liverpool where we beat them four two. And the Wimbledon away game where Atkinson scores a goal that really does bear quite a lot of comparisons with the Maradona 86 goal. Not the one where he punches it in either. Um, You know, this is still one of the finest goals ever scored in the Premier League 20 years later. So it's it's longer than that now, isn't it? 30 years later. Um, Yes. And this is one of the greatest things that anyone's ever seen on a Premier League pitch. And... When you've got that sort of stuff going in and Atkinson's flying and Saunders has come in and he's hit the ground running and he's proving Sooness wrong, left, right and centre. And, you know, Kevin Richardson looks like the greatest captain you'll ever see. And we're keeping, you know, a handful of clean sheets here and there. But when we don't keep clean sheets, it doesn't matter because we score three or four. It's, even though you're right, there are a lot of games in that first half where you look at it and think, ah, if we, if we had a couple of extra points from those games, emotionally it's really hard to go back to that first half of the season because it was the good times. It's sort of like if I went back to the, you know, to to compare it with something from your team, the trying to find extra points in the first half of Kevin Keegan's season in 95, 96, it just wouldn't feel right somehow, you know? And I think the thing about that, that first Premier League season as well, is it, it was. It seemed very open, you know. United were the favourites, but it wasn't as if, you know, it wasn't as if you kind of expect them to blow people away because they hadn't proven it. Um, and an FA Cup win or two in the Ferguson era, kind of, you know, it didn't. It didn't really mean that you expect them to go out and dominate people. So, you know, it was a new era, a, a new name for the competition, uh, some new rules, and you didn't really know what was going to happen. And I don't think anybody like looked at Norwich or Villa and went, oh, well, that's a bit weird. What are they doing there? Because, you know, now that that Liverpool side had declined, it did feel more open. It did feel like you know, a newly promoted team like Blackburn could, you know, could make an impact in their, in their first season. Um, when did they finish in the end of fourth? Um, sounds about right, yeah. Yeah, yes, fourth. fourth. Yeah, so but, and yeah. QP, QPR, QPR fifth. fifth. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, it's it's one of those those weird things that because Man United now look so 
monolithic uh, at that, throughout the 1990s. But it's a, really an invention, not of this season, but of the one after where they are so dominant and so good and they blow everybody out of the water. Uh, and I forget how many points they win the league by, but it's an embarrassing number. In 93-94, in 92-93, even the amount of points they win the league by is slightly misleading as how close the league was because... Because mm, still they, the last three games. Yeah. And United win the last three. So before that point, there's really a Rizzler between the two sides, to be honest with you. Um, and I say that fully acknowledging that the Rizzler is in Man United's favour. I'm not going to come out here and tell you that they didn't deserve to win the league, not least because the last three games do still count. Um, but that's that's just it. They didn't blow teams away. Uh, I think the, the number of like big wins that Villa and United had were probably about the same. United were just that little bit better at winning the games they should win. And that's where the, the difference was. And it, maybe it was because they kept it that little bit tighter. They played that little bit more direct and they played with that little bit more pace and power. It's classic English cliches, but they, they held good in English football for a long time for a reason. And te- and until the, the tactical levels of the league start to pick up, they'd hold good for a little while longer as well. The psychological hold fact- they had over everybody, you know. They, they just, you know, teams were beaten before they played United. Once, you know, once this, once Kansnar comes in, teams were quite often beaten before they played them. And that was very much the case, you know, for for a really long time. And I think sometimes, I mean, my major memory of the 1990s, of the second half of the 1990s, is just being like so depressed about watching United just beat everybody and watching plastic Man United fans spring up in like every town in Kent. Like it's the most ridiculous thing in the history of time. Um, go to go to school for non-uniform day. Everyone's wearing a United shirt. Like, come on now. <laughs> so, so like, I would have loved it if Villa had won the league that season. It would have spared me ten years of like disgust. Neil's full rant on Manchester United in the nineties. Refer back to season to episode one of season one. What makes one. it? What what makes it ludicrous in your case is that you're a couple of years older than, than us. We had that with like fake United fans turning up, but United only got good when you're about thirteen, right? So these 12, 13, yeah. Yeah, so these are people who probably had a different team a year or so before. Oh, 100%, 100%. Like, you know, like, and you see that, like, you you see it kind of go through. Like, there are a few, there are a few, like, even a few plastic Blackburn fans for a bit. Yeah, I've I've, I've (laughs) got one. Imagine. Imagine. Yeah, that's um, that's picking the wrong horse, isn't it? (laughs) Did you all write to about 98 and after that? Probably not. It's it's worth exploring the relationship between uh, Ron Atkinson and the owner, Doug Ellis, uh, because I, I think this is the other sort of major difference between Villa and, say, United around this time is that there's there's obviously some some real tension between uh, Big Ron and uh, and Deadly Doug. Um, if you if you're looking for any supporting viewing uh, for this uh, this podcast, May I point you in the direction of uh, the Aston Villa 92-93 season review, which is is on YouTube, which I think probably shows a little bit more than they intended about uh, about about the way that Ellis and Atkinson sort of viewed themselves. Um, there's not much football in it. Very but, little. Uh, 
there's very and and considering this is the you know the one season where Villa came very close to actually winning the league there's perhaps a depressing amount of there's a, there's about as much football as there is footage of Sean Teal's back garden Yes, that's fair. That is fair. If you think about it, if, if you'd have told them then that this is the last time for 30 odd years that we'd finish second, do you think they'd have put out the same season review knowing that? Where it's less than an hour long, there's more footage of supporters talking about just what was going on and old men saying about, I used to come and watch Pongo wearing in the 30s. And <laughs> Ron Atkinson, Ron Atkinson walking his dog. Um, what else? What else? Doug Ellis talking to boardroom meeting. It's the most bizarre thing. I mean, really, I mean, though, if you if you watch the Amazon Prime Spurs documentary, you, you wouldn't see it was that much different. To be honest, <laughs> like, it's just like you know, bizarre shots of Mourinho like chilling in his office, and then he hears someone on the TV saying something he doesn't like, and he goes, "Shut up!" and goes and turns the TV off. <laughs> I think the difference here is production values, though, isn't it? Because in this Villa one, like, it, it, there's a very sort of it feels like the office, like you can hear sort of fax machines going off in the background, and you've got sort of footage of Doug Ellis having a meeting with. I don't know, the, an accountant or something like that. It was so weird. I've never seen anything like it. Yeah. I mean, I think we've we've sold it to people. They're definitely going to go and, and watch You've, it. So, so, so I'm, I'm going to watch it. I, so I'm going to cycle us back to the point that you're making about it, which is that, you know, it does reveal quite a lot about how Doug Ellis sees himself in the, the scheme of things. Uh, the, the sheer amount of footage of the chairman in a season review video where we've just come second and we can't find an hour's worth of actual footage from the whole season to put on this tape is quite something. Um, Doug, Doug's, a, Doug's a legacies are quite a mixed bag. You know, there's no way around it. Um, he presides over the decline from the European Cup to falling out of the league. But he also hires Graham Taylor, Ron Atkinson, Brian Little, John Gregory, all managers who did pretty good for Villa. And he, his last act, really, before handing over as chairman, was to hire Martin O'Neill, who was, before Dean Smith, our last manager of any real note. Um, he also left us unable to compete with other sides financially, but he left us without debt. How do you balance that? You know, we weren't in danger of going out of business. We were in danger of falling out of the division. That's a, you know, how you weigh all that stuff up is is difficult. But the thing that makes it hard for Villa fans to stomach was just how much in those early years he had a reputation for seeking the limelight, shall we say. But that was, it was the era, I think, of the, I guess it's the first era of the celebrity chairman, because obviously then you get the second wave which is your Abramovich and you know and your Randy Lerner and, and and whoever else you know these kind of guys that are you know have bottomless pockets this was the sort of Ken Bates Doug Ellis Irving Scholar at Spurs and then Alan Sugar afterwards um Robert you know, Maxwell Robert, Robert Maxwell um you had uh Martin Edwards oh, at United Golden Solomon didn't you yeah, uh, you know, and you, Gold, you've, Golden Sullivan. Who? I mean, aren't they still at? Aren't they still at West Ham now? 
They are. Well, they, yeah. were, they were. Well, they were affirming him at the time. Yeah. Now they're they're still at West Ham, like the porn empire. Didn't they? Get, um, didn't they get dragged out of St Andrews in handcuffs one day? Pretty sure probably, they did. Probably. Probably. Yeah. yeah. Sounds about right. Um, but yeah, like it was that era of these sort of, you know, these kind of funny-looking, rich but not super rich, uh, crooked you know, football chairman, a very strange thing to look back on. And I think for any younger fan, when football is so, you know, commercialised and, and business savvy, and nowadays, you know, it's all about people like Daniel Levy, who are, you know, kind of MBA run private equity funds and all that stuff before they get into football. I mean, this is just completely something else. Um, mm. You know, and, and we talked about um, Ridsdale on the Leeds episode and he becomes one of these, one of the last ones of these, actually, I think. But it, it was just a very different, <sighs> a very different era. And they, they, like you say, they sort the limelight. Like Ken Bates at Chelsea was this truly strange figure. Um, and you, you compare it to what came afterwards. You know, Chelsea were a joke team for like for years and years and years because of him. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's just that time when you've got these sort of, uh, local, I mean, they're almost, you can almost compare them to these sort of medieval barons, you know, (laughs) like they've got this little fiefdom and they own enough land to have a few servants and a, you know, and a a village manor where they invite people for dinner and lord it over them, but but they're not anything that consequential. that's That's how the Premier League comes about. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I will say that Ron, um, not Ron, sorry, we're not on Ron, we were on Doug. Um, he was public enemy number one when I was growing up for Villa because he wasn't spending enough to match up to the the other clubs, and he was, you know, in the limelight all the time and naming the stand after himself, which apparently wasn't done by him. <laughs> but, 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 I mean, to be honest with you, compared with what we've seen subsequently, and you've mentioned a few names there now, like Ridsdale and so on, and I could mention like Mike Ashley and a handful of other, and and you know, Man City being a great sports washing kind of operation. And when you think about all that stuff. Doug Ellis feels quite gentle now, doesn't it? Let's be yeah. honest. And, you know, I, like, there was a... The fact, the fact that he claimed to invent the overhead kick just doesn't compare to any of these other things that we say. It's just a bit <laughs> funny. <laughs> no, absolutely. There was, a, there was an interesting article in The Athletic, actually, reappraising uh, Alan Sugar at Spurs. And it's a very similar story. Like, Sugar was hated at Spurs. Like, first of all, because he took out... Because he, he got rid of Terry Venables. Uh, you know, they kind of went in together and then it turned out Venables was really crooked and Sugar sacked him, quite rightly. Um, but, it, it, you know, he was, you know, at the time, Sugar wasn't going to win a popularity contest, uh, contest against Terry Venables. Um, and obviously, like, yeah, he he didn't spend as much as people wanted him to spend. We were not as good as Arsenal for the entire time that he was chairman. But he saved the club. And, you know, you have to balance that out. Like, Yes, there was a lot of stuff under Sugar that was a bit laughable, but at the same time, without him, I'd have to be supporting Norwich right now because you know when I was eleven years old, I was kind of looking up potential second teams, and Villa and Norwich were the two in the uh, on the shortlist. So you know, I mean, we have to balance these things. It's out the same. With, it's the same with a lot of chairmen, isn't it? I mean, I mean, Ashley's another one who you know is is certainly not a popular man on Tyneside and. But when you look at what he's actually done over the sort of the 13 years, the club makes a profit. 
it's it's not it's not in debt. Um, sure, we suffered a couple of relegations, but it's been good for business in the end. Yeah, it, it's 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 difficult when you, you see the number of teams who have struggled and have have haven't bounced back uh, when they've gone down and things like that. You know, are they so bad? Spurs have stayed in the Premier League all this time. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, having the same amount of money as, as some of these other teams. It's only now. I mean, Levy's obviously is a very shrewd operator, and um, the, the the club is now set up to, to for success. Um, Newcastle aren't there at all, but you know, without Sugar, Levy wouldn't have. Without Sugar, Levy would never have come along. You know, what exactly. Sugar did was stabilise the club enough that it was attractive as a proposition, you know. It made them viable as a, as, a, as a business, as an opportunity for somebody with some actual sort of money and some business acumen to come and go, right, yeah, we can we can do something with this. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, Villa, I mean, get to take it back to Villa, you know, um, they looked like they'd found their kind of very princey Randy Lerner, but obviously it, it kind of soured, didn't it? But um, at, at least we, we can uh, enjoy them this season and say, it's nice to see them, you know, in the Premier League and having success. So, obviously, we fall short in uh, 92-93 by, by quite a way in the end, because, as we say, we lose a nine-point gap. So, uh, in the end, a, a one-point deficit to Man United turns into a ten-point deficit. But I suppose we should really kind of think about how it all unravels the next 12 to 18 months. Um Despite the fact we we're the team that denies Man United the treble in in ninety three ninety four we win the League Cup, um, beating Man United in the final they were ninety minutes or so away from that treble, uh, but within twelve to fifteen months, um, yeah, Big Ron is gone and he does manage a little bit longer. I, I, you know, he gets a, a run at Coventry and a run at. Um, Forest, which the last are in particular is probably better forgotten if I'm thinking right. But yeah, the the, the last one is bad. Yeah, yeah. So I just think goes, before I can goes back before, to Sheffield Wednesday as well. The the Wednesday run was was very good um, on the whole. I, I was just going to say before I weigh in and kind of because obviously it's my team. I have thoughts for days on on all this stuff. But before I weighed in, did you have any thoughts on the ninety three, ninety four, or even the 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 last year where he's manager until the winter and then we transitioned to Brian Little? That, that whole spell. Is there any anything that stands out to you guys from that time? I mean, I, I guess the thing is, is that all teams have got a cycle, and you know, I think you made the point earlier on. They just got to the end of that cycle and um, he hasn't kind of, I guess he hadn't refreshed the team enough. And it was the classic example of kind of if you don't strengthen while you're good, it's going to catch up with you in the end. Um, and, and I think probably that was what happened to them. I mean, I didn't really watch it at this time. I mean, the, my sort of knowledge has been from mainly under you guys' direction sort of videos and, and reading around it sort of sort of retrospectively. But looking at what's happened, as you say, that there's no recruitment. And when you've got teams like you know, Blackburn are throwing a, a bit of money at it, uh, United go out and get Roy Keane, um, uh, amongst a few others. Newcastle come up and they're, you know, they're, they're tearing up trees. And Villa just, Villa stands still. And if, 
Atkinson is frustrated by the lack of investment or the, t- the, the fans are frustrated by the lack of investment, at this point it's fully justified because obviously with the, the advent of the, the Premier League, there was meant to be more money going into the, into the clubs and the teams that use that money to invest in their squads and and improve and bring in more exciting players and, and more eyes to the Premier League were the ones who were going to succeed. And from what I can see, Villa made no attempt to do that. So our buys in that 93-94 season were um, Guy Whittingham, who had been the star of the Portsmouth team that had just missed out on promotion. He was brought in to try and add a few more goals up front, but never really becomes a first-team player beyond the fringes you know he's he's always second choice to to the guys who are already established in in fact the the guy who was the improvement the the signing of that league cup winning year who did go on to really become a star of the team was was andy townsend who a year or so later becomes the club captain and i think he was an underappreciated acquisition not least because we don't win the 1996 league cup final without him if you go back and watch that that game again against Leeds. He he runs the show. But in ninety three, ninety four, we are we're a pretty good side. I think. I think that tenth place belies the fact that we go on a bit of a long bad run after the League Cup final. A combination, I suspect, of the goals drying up, as we've discussed before. These are strikers that blow hot and cold. Um, Paul McGrath was eight defeats after that. Yeah. I think there's also a League Cup hangover from the fact that we've won the only thing we're going to win this year. So, yeah, how up for it can you get? It's also Paul McGrath um, wakes up the morning of the League Cup final, uh, basically with a paralyzed shoulder, plays that game that well against Man United, unable to move his arm, pretty much. Uh, and they out there, apparently you get the impression from reading the reports that they all think this is another drink-related thing. And it's only like later that it's just some weird... Um, nerve kind of condition or whatever but basically he's got an arm that he can't really use properly uh and so he doesn't really play again for the rest of the season which is where Ekiog gets his chance uh to come in and uh it's just a, a bit of a perfect storm of factors that means as you say eight eight defeats in the last two months of the season and so we fall from a pretty competitive position to mid-table um the one that i think is maybe where I have an issue because I don't think there's anything too wrong. We're not spending a great deal, but in 93, 94, it's not too bad. They, they, the players had another year in them. I'm a little mystified about the, the relegation of Gary Parker because I always thought he was quality and I don't know why he doesn't feature as much beyond a certain point for big run. I get that Townsend comes in and is brilliant and that's one thing, but why they couldn't play together. I don't know. Um, it's the following season that I don't understand where we, we what big Ron, the way he, t- his teams played football, what they think about going about bringing John Fashnu from Wimbledon. I don't understand. <laughs> I've forgotten about that. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't, I, not only do I not understand, I don't understand the logic behind it. Like you can, it's one thing to be able to see what someone's trying to do and appreciate it and say, okay, well it didn't work out, but fair enough. It seems like almost like buying someone because they're there. And you I mean, can. And there was a, a great deal of that at this point in the Premier League. Let's not forget. And then, I mean, who the, we also bought Nai Lamptey 
who you know, the Ghanaian wonder kid who just wasn't built for English football at the time. Uh, and we basically set his development back, you know, bringing him in and trying to play him with the reputation that he had. It just it just didn't work. And and yeah, the, the wheels came off very quickly in, in 94, 95. Um, I think we only won two games in before Big Ron got the sack about, uh, yeah, early November, that kind of time. Two games won by, the, by then. And uh, Brian Little has a job on his hands to even keep us in the division. I think we survived by about three points in the end. Uh, so, so it's a real sad ending that we came within three games of, well, three or four games of winning the league. To less than two years later, we, you know, we're, we're struggling to stay in the Premier League. And Brian Little, I suppose, deserves all the credit in the world for turning it round so that we can finish fourth the year after that. I guess Little and isn't Greg is Gregory's assistant at this point? Is he still at Wickham? He's he leaving behind uh, at Wickham, didn't he? Uh, I. Yeah, I don't think Gregory was ever Little's assistant at Villa. I think it was Alan Evans was yeah, Brian Little's right. assistant. Yeah, because I think wasn't Gregory's assistant at, Little's assistant at Wickham and then Little leaves and Gregory gets his chance at Wickham or something like that. Um, it, it could be. I mean, I know Little was at Leicester before he moved to Villa rather than Wickham. But Gregory oh, definitely right, right, came right. up from Wickham. They say uh, whether or associated not. in some way, weren't they, the two of them? Um, yeah, I wouldn't but, have thought. I wouldn't have been surprised. But they were both... You know, they were both kind of a new generation of manager. Uh, and Big Ron certainly represented the old school of managers. And as progressive as his football was for the time, you know, I think it's it's pretty clear that, that when Little comes in, he's got a lot more ideas than, uh, than Atkinson had. Um, and it's interesting to kind of think about these these English coaches that weren't coaching, you know, in the 80s and, and sort of uh, a kind of watching what's going on in the continent in a lot more detail and kind of setting their sides up a bit differently and, uh, and being more tactically flexible. Because I remember that little team as being very tactically flexible. Mm. Yeah, I mean, they mainly in that first year played uh, kind of three at the back, five and two up front but they were you know like a lot of sides they would mix and match that as and when they needed to i mean that was the route uh, in their best season was um was that very european looking three at the back you can almost argue yeah. that uh that, that paul mcgraw was almost a libero kind of figure in this in this kind of side but um i guess what the kind of difference was it sums it up for me the last center back that big ron buys is phil king the first big centre back that Garrett, uh, that Brian Little buys is a midfielder that he converts into a centre back, and I think that yeah, yeah Gareth, <laughs> yeah, and that uh, who goes on to be probably the classiest centre back, not named Paul McGrath, that Villa have had in my lifetime. So yeah, I think that's that shows the difference between the two and what they were looking to do quite significantly and and Southgate and Ekiog with or without McGrath because they start as a three at the back and move on to a fourth a flat back four Southgate and Ekiog they go on to just be um the next generation uh I, I don't want to downplay what um McGrath and Teal did for this side they were they were brilliant um but they were reaching the end of the road McGrath was really quite old by this point um, by the certainly by the time that Big Ron is sacked, and there was only a matter of time before you would you were going to have to go in another direction. 
but what a player he was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, brilliant. I mean, and another midfielder that became a centre back as his knees gave out. It's a bit sad that there wasn't more on this season review about him. I mean, genuinely, yeah. the first time you saw him was when he went up to collect the PFA Player of the Year award. Famously shy, won. though, wasn't he? He didn't want to go to well, the the awards thing for that. They almost had to kind of blackmail him into going um, because that's this is part of the reason why he, why he drank yeah. quite so much. Uh, it was a crippling fear. He was fine on the pitch. But then once you got him off and had to deal with the, the celebrity that went along along with it, then, um, you know, he just couldn't handle it. Um, he probably, if he never had that side to his personality, he probably never would have left Man United, if you think about it. You, um, um, one thing we should mention about Paul McGrath as well is he uh, put Roberto Baggio in his pocket and walked around with him um, in the 94 World Cup which, you know, mm. was, was no easy thing to do. Like, you know, you're playing against Baggio and Signori and uh, he locked it up um, so that Ray Houghton could score that uh, score that winner. Yeah, I mean, that's a very um, Villa look to that island side, if you think about it. There's yeah, Houghton, three, yeah. Yeah, three of their uh, big, of their key players. And um, was Cascarino still in the side then? He was, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he was still so in the squad, I think. Yeah, he's one of ours, um, but less impressive for Villa than he ever was for several other sides. Do you know, my favourite Cascarino fact is he went to Marseille in like 95 and scored like, he scored like 25 goals for Marseille in league or something like that, right at the end of his career in like 95. Weird, <laughs> weird career move, but often forgotten about. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that. <laughs> he began his career being exchanged for a set of tracksuits and ended it, you know, being one of the top scorers in Ligue 1 for Marseille. Any final thoughts on this on this Villa side before we we wrap up for the for the week? I think oh, one of I mean, on, for me first. one of my one of my sort of favourite Premier League teams. I think um, if we talk about all the you know, all the kind of um, fun sides that, that, you know, challenged but didn't win a title. You know, you'd put this Villa side up there with teams like, you know, the 2014 Liverpool team and the, um, you know, and the 2017 Spurs team and, you know... Those sides that kind of, you know, came very, very close, but just didn't maybe have the grit at, at the end to bring it over the line. You know, the Norwich side of this same season. Um, there's the, the the history of the league is littered with them, isn't it? Um, and and this is this is another another great example of a, a really good team that deserves to be remembered. It's really hard for me to to separate so much of it from my own experience of it coming to the as as i did where they were the first team that i was watching they're the villa team that i first encountered and kind of fell in love with for the lack of a better better description uh I'm lucky in a sense that they happened to be my local team team that all my family supported that i happened to be watching them this season rather than you know two years earlier and joseph Angloss. who knows whether it would have stuck um so it's really hard for me to separate that image that you first get of some of these players who stand larger than life to me because I still see them through the eyes of a six, seven, eight year or whatever I was. So, yeah, it's it's difficult. I suppose 
in many ways it's one of the things I take away is that they were they were and Norwich were the real entertainers of this season and there's a reminder for me that we see again with Liverpool a few years back we saw it with Newcastle in 96 uh probably two or three other teams we can mention football often doesn't reward you necessarily for being the entertaining team you know the football rewards you for keeping it tight and the, you know there's all sorts of lessons of football history towards being that slightly gritty boring dirty side that kind of grind it out and um it doesn't change the fact for me that I think if you're the sort of person who is quite happy to sit here talking about football history on a podcast for however long, you're a bit romantic about football. And these are maybe the teams that we that we should remember, uh, whether they win something or not. That seems to be more important to me in some ways. Um, uh, maybe it's maybe it's because it's my team. I don't know. Um, but I certainly have. I don't think it's just that it's my team. I feel a lot warmer about the 95-96 Newcastle team than I do the side that won the double that year. Uh, I feel much warmer about this Villa side than this Man United team. And the year later, the Man United team would go on to be a staggering team that you look on with tremendous awe. They weren't that yet. This was a team developing. And, you know, I think, well, well, I'll say exactly the same thing when it comes to Norwich. I mean, these are the teams that the Premier League is built on in some way for me. And I, I can't overstate how important that is. Okay. Well, that ra- wraps up this uh, this edition of three at the back uh, for this week. Uh, we're hoping that Mazza will have recovered in time for, for next week. Um, where are we going next week? We're going to the Riverside. Uh, we're going to talk about the aforementioned Middlesbrough Galacticos uh, from 96-97. Uh, um, we're going to have a look at why a team containing Janino, Ravinelli and Emerson playing pretty well managed to get relegated. And, uh, and everything else in between. So uh, join us next week for that one. Uh, remember, you can check out uh, season one of For the Back uh, by going to your favourite podcast provider. Um, so you can do that in the meantime. Until next week, thanks for listening. You've been listening to Four at the Back with Joe, Maz, Neil and Pete. You can follow us on Twitter or on Instagram at 4ATBpod. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts by rating and subscribing so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening. See you next week.